cockpits over Wi-Fi and DSL lines they installed. U.S. authorities allege that one of the suspects, Wei Sengfua, a suspected organized crime member, began the Las Vegas operation shortly after fleeing Macau, where he was arrested in June on similar allegations. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Ryan Curtis. The feds say you owe $7 billion and you have a sigh of relief. That's the crazy world we live in with today's banking behemoths. The attorney general says Citigroup's misconduct was extreme. The bank's misconduct was egregious. And under the terms of the settlement, the bank has admitted to its misdeeds in great detail. The rest of the story in just a moment. The bank's stock, by the way, actually went up 3% because of better-than-expected earnings. Also in the news, it was another merger Monday. Stocks moved sharply higher, and reports emerged that Apple may delay the bigger iPhone. Here at home, legislators rejected six amendments to the stamp duty bill. These include one to rebate the tax to companies that hold the unit for more than three years. The administration seems to be telling the local and foreign business, you are not welcome. Please do do business elsewhere. That's legislator Abraham Razak. The overall bill will likely be approved later today, though, minus the amendments. In Europe, it was more of the furrowed brow from ECB chief Mario Draghi. The risks surrounding the economic outlook remain on the downside. Geopolitical risks as well as developments in both emerging market economies and global financial markets may have a negative effect on economic conditions in the euro area. Even so, European stocks overnight were broadly higher. Our guests this morning include Francis Jung from Credit Agricole CIB on rates and currencies, Ken Lowe from ANX on the world's first Bitcoin debit card, and Sam Hoy from Hong Kong University and Tyler Holland from NTRAC will be with us for a discussion on renewable energy and energy conservation. By the way, how far away are we from selling our own power back into the grid? And is the smart home the next killer? app and a hell of a lot more important than the smartphone. Asian markets now are moving higher. The Nikkei's up a third of a percent. The ASX 200 in Australia is barely higher, up four points. The Kospi in Seoul is up about a half a percent with an 11-point gain to 20.04. The dollar is trading now at 101.54 yen, the euro 1.362 US dollars, and the pound is 13 Hong Kong dollars and 24 cents. Okay, a little bit of news and then our first guest, Citigroup and the Justice Department, as I mentioned there in our headlines, have agreed to a $7 billion deal. It settles a federal investigation into the mortgage securities that the bank sold in the financial crisis. The Attorney General summarizes the deal. Today, the Justice Department attained a landmark civil resolution with Citigroup, totaling $7 billion in fines and consumer relief to address the bank's involvement in a scheme to sell fraudulent securities that were backed by toxic loans. Now, this total includes a a civil penalty of $4 billion, the largest penalty to date of its kind. So that is a massive settlement. The deal averts a lawsuit that would have been costly for both sides. Mr. Holder ticks off the charges here. 
Penalty is appropriate, given the strength of the evidence of the wrongdoing committed by Citi. Despite the fact that Citigroup learned of serious and widespread defects among the increasingly risky loans that they were securitizing, the bank and its employees concealed these defects. They misrepresented the facts, including the level of risk. They sold defective loans to countless investors, including federally insured financial institutions. And they made false statements to investors in marketing materials and even in documents filed with the Securities and Exchange Commission. They led investors and the public to believe that these financial products had been originated in compliance with the law and key underwriting guidelines when this was often not the case. That's the Attorney General Eric Holder. Citigroup announced earnings that were better than expected, and that, coupled with the settlement, had the stock up 3.6%. As mentioned, also a number of mergers. I'll tell you about one in particular. The Irish drug maker Shire says that it's prepared to accept an improved bid from AbbVie. It paves the way for a merger. AbbVie, which is based in Chicago, has offered a big cash in stock equal to 53.2 pounds a share for Shire. That's a Equivalent to roughly $53 billion. On Wall Street, stocks rebounded. The Dow Jones Industrial Average up over 17,000 on the deal news and on the earnings from Citigroup. The S&P 500 up nine points. That's half a percent at 1977. The Dow was up 111 points to 17,055. And the yield on the 10-year Treasury note rose three basis points to 2.55%. So that's kind of the backdrop. We'll get to Europe and Mario Draghi and Apple and a lot of other material later. But let's say good morning now to Francis Jung, Senior Asia Strategist at Credit Agricole CIB. Good morning, Francis. Good morning. So Janet Yellen to speak tonight and tomorrow. Will she likely be dovish uh, so steady as she goes? Um, I think actually uh, nothing really that can materially alter the Fed stance is expected, uh, especially during his prepared remarks. Her prepared remarks that uh, again uh, she would uh, reiterate that uh, rates would be remain remaining quite low for an extended period, but going forward it would be data dependent. So uh, what is more interesting could be during the Q and A section. Uh, we are expecting that she to be asked uh, some questions. Uh, First, for example, why the equilibrium interest rates should be lower than in the previous uh, years, even mm. if the Fed is uh, going to normalize it. So uh, that is a more like medium-term uh, questions that may be addressed. This has to do with the thesis that uh, perhaps uh, normal interest rates now uh, might be around 2% instead of 4%. Exactly. Um, I think uh, the answer probably like uh, on the absolute level of economic activities. So even if we have the same growth rate, let's say 2 to 3%, we are growing from a much lower absolute base, uh, which means that there is still a lot of slack in the economy. Hence, uh, interest rates may remain lower than historical average for uh, a couple of years to go. I think another focus would be uh, on her stance on financial stability, because um, Earlier last week, um, she kind of saying that uh, macroprudential measures and regulators are more responsible uh, for maintaining financial stability, whereas uh, we all understand that central banks should also take some responsibility uh, in this uh, financial market. So just to explain that to people, it's kind of like what the authorities here have done, the monetary authority and um, the government uh, putting in these all these clamps, kind of administrative clamps. Uh, maybe you could call them macroprudential. It's not interest rates. You can't raise interest rates here, so 
they had to do these administrative measures to um, you know keep the housing market from skyrocketing even even further. Is Ms. Yellen calling for some of that in the U.S.? be part of it. Um, the problem is that uh, the Fed is reluctant to raise interest rates. And uh, low interest rates actually is uh, definitely one of the underlying factors for um, late going forward if, if we have any like asset price bubbles. But she kind of uh, downplayed uh, the role of interest rates in uh, leading to these kind of bubbles. And in the meantime, just like um, what we are seeing in Hong Kong or in Singapore elsewhere, that uh, we have a lot of administered measures uh, trying to care, but we all know that it seems these measures are not that effective. Yes, um, financial stability is not an actual uh, mandate for the Fed, uh, but it, it has been talked about uh, recently, as you mentioned. The two main mandates, obviously, uh, um, unemployment uh, or overall employment and uh, and also um, inflation. Uh, inflation. And uh, so inflation is creeping up uh, closer to the target and unemployment is coming down closer to the target. Uh, do you think that she might in the Q&A offer any hints as to the gap in between the end of, of tapering and the beginning of rates going up. I think she would be very careful because she did that before um, by mentioning about the six-month period yeah. and afterwards she watered down again uh, her rhetoric. Uh, apparently, currently, the focus uh, from the Fed is... Uh, the labor market rather than inflation. And in the labor market, um, not only looking at the jobless rate, and there are actually more than 10 indicators I believe the Fed is looking into, although most of them are still showing some improvement. But the labor market improvement itself uh, would be good enough for them to end uh, the asset purchase program, but that may not be a trigger for them yeah. to hike interest rates. They want to see higher wages, I guess, for people uh, so that they can enjoy some of the spoils. Anyway, um, moving over to here, the HKMA intervenes again. I don't know how many times it's been now, but it's been a number of times. Um, you've got kind of a weak U.S. dollar, so the Hong Kong dollar, I guess, has to be up at the strongest that it can be. Um, where's all this money coming from? Uh, if you look at the performance of various asset prices, they are actually not reflecting very strong um, supportive flows. So my guess is that uh, maybe the funds are coming uh, in preparation for uh, some investment opportunities, especially, for example, upon the Shanghai-Hong Kong Connect. So maybe these funds are parked just at Hong Kong dollar and uh, in order to prepare for investing in some equities. But um, in terms of the equities investment, that can be intraday trading, they can be very short-term trading. So I don't expect a continued inflows uh, because it seems the preparation is more or less done. And if you look at other asset classes like Hong Kong dollar papers, bonds, the yields are not attractive. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. So we can't necessarily predict uh, any upward pressure on the Hong Kong dollar. Can we predict any upward pressure on the renminbi or is that harder to predict now? It seems the worst is already over for the renminbi. So from now on, we are expecting very mild appreciation again uh, because it seems the two-way bet uh, momentum has already been achieved by the PBOC. If they continue or if the market continue to bet on or to, to trade on uh, some renminbi weakness, it would again go back to the one-way bet, but this time run will be on the downside. So sort of the end of the carry trade, mm -hmm. uh, I guess. Uh, listen, I know you have to run pretty quickly. So final question uh, mm -hmm. Is, you know, people are talking about all these bubbles all over the place. Is it likely that we, we see more of a bubble in high yield or bonds generally and that they might, um, they might pull back before equities pull back? 
really depends because uh, it's a different asset classes, but um, the spreads have been tightening. So uh, indeed, the high yields are quite expensive. However, in the risk-on environment, we would still expect uh, funds going to search for higher yields. So they may continue to be uh, supportive for the moment before sentiment really reaches to a level that benefits ultimately equities. Okay, Francis, thank you very much for joining us here on Money for Nothing. Francis Jung, Senior Asia Strategist at Credit Agricole CIB and one of our top 10 analysts on this program. One of the rock stars, I guess, uh, in our list of analysts coming on the program, that Francis Jung from Credit Agricole. Lawmakers have voted down six amendments to a government bill to double the stamp duty on property transactions. This came after they passed the second reading of the bill yesterday. It's also expected a seventh proposed amendment to refund companies the extra tax paid three years after they buy a commercial property for self-use will be voted down later today. Our Wendy Wong has the story. The amendments that were voted down yesterday had been proposed by lawmakers Abraham Shack and James Toe. Mr. Shack, who represents the real estate and construction sector, proposed exempting companies from paying the double stamp duty, or DSD, when they purchase commercial properties. He said the DSD was not favorable to Hong Kong's business environment and that it has sharply increased companies' operational costs. Is it even more ironic and that long-term non-speculative investors are subject to the punitive DSD even if they hold properties over extended period. In other words, the administration seems to be telling the local and foreign business, you are not welcome. Please do, do business elsewhere. This is exactly the message you are sending out. One of the amendments proposed by Democratic Party's James Ho was intended to provide an exemption for transferrals of non-residential properties between close relatives. But the Secretary for Financial Services, Casey Chan, said the government had already made appropriate changes to the bill. He said the amendments moved by the lawmakers would undermine the effectiveness of the measure. He spoke to an interpreter. Members are still going to move some CSAs, some of which is a departure from our policy intent and would also undermine the effectiveness of our measures. The government cannot accept these amendments. Lawmakers are expected to discuss later today another proposed amendment moved by accountancy sector lawmaker Kenneth Long to refund companies the extra tax paid three years after these firms bought commercial property for self-use, but is expected to be voted down too after the group People Power decided not to support it. The government hopes the bill will be passed before the Legislative Council's summer recess to help cool the property market. Wendy Wong reporting. The head of the Monetary Authority, Norman Chan, says he understands that the tightening measures that the government has put in are seen as spoiling the party by taking away the punch bowl, but he says they are necessary to contain market bubbles. Let's switch to Europe. ECB Chief Mario Draghi said downside risks are still the prevailing concern. Unemployment remains high in the euro area. Unutilized capacity continues to be sizable. Moreover, credit growth to the private sector remains subdued and the necessary adjustment of balance sheets in the public and private sectors will probably continue to dampen the pace of recovery. He said Europe was still moving kind of slowly on reform. 
Further downside risks include an inadequate implementation of structural reforms in the member states and weaker than expected domestic demand. Mario Draghi, pretty good day for equity markets in Europe. The DAX up 116 points to 97.83. The CAC was up 33 points at 43.50. So that was a gain of three quarters of a percent. That uh, gain for the DAX, 1.2 percent. And the FTSE 100 was up 55 points at 67.46. The time is now 19 minutes after 8 o'clock and you're listening to Money for Nothing. Well, where are we on solar power? on renewables. When will we be able to actually sell power back into the grid? That technology, by the way, is there now, but it's still too expensive. Well, Beijing is planning to increase the subsidies on power sales by rooftop solar farm developers to state-owned power distributors by up to 55%. We decided to have a discussion generally about this, and we invited Dr. Sam Hoy, lecturer at the University of Hong Kong, and Tyler Holland, co-founder of NTRAC, to the program. Gentlemen, good morning. Good morning. So China has surpassed... uh, almost all the countries now uh, to become the leading investor in renewable energy in 2013. That's according to a report by REN21, a global renewable energy policy network. I looked on the uh, Hong Kong government's website. It says that um, it is leading the way. The government is leading the way here on sustainable energy use and has been using a lot of renewable energy over 30 years. But it doesn't say much about subsidies. So I'd like to get from both of you first kind of an overall state of where we are now in this process toward moving more aggressively toward renewables. Uh, let me go to you first, Tyler. Well, um, first of all, as, as a little bit of my own background, uh, I previously worked with a company called Evergreen Power that was doing uh, solar projects in Hong Kong. Uh, and um, the fact that we currently no longer do solar projects should tell you a little bit about the direction that uh, solar is headed in, in Hong Kong. So it's not going forward. Um, if it is going forward, it's going forward under the, the auspices of the two u- major utilities um, rather than as a sort of robust uh, private market as it would be in, for instance, countries like Germany or uh, Australia. Yeah. And do you think that that is um, because the subsidies aren't there or the infrastructure isn't there or something else? There's a, a wide number of reasons. Um, first of all, with solar, um, you can't um, just sort of put it anywhere. You have to have space to, to place these solar panels, whether it's a rooftop or an open field or something like that. And uh, one thing that Hong Kong has pretty uh, minimal resources in is land and, and space in general. Um, so already you're starting from a much smaller area of potential uh, solar installations. And then as projects are you know small and maybe come in once a month for any given installer, um, suppliers basically have to take quite high margins in order to stay in business. And the fact that you have people who are installing solar for um, more PR purposes, you know, getting their green credit, uh, means that they're willing to pay those really high sticker prices. Uh, And so nobody has any incentive to either provide or buy solar at a level that would be um, really at grid parity in any way. Okay, you mentioned uh, that you you made a pivot. We'll get to the pivot in a minute, but let's get uh, Sam Hoy in, uh, lecturer at University of Hong Kong, uh, uh, Professor, do you agree that we're not moving forward um, in any measurable form in Hong Kong? Oh, I agree on that uh, because uh, I think most of the uh, solar energy projects we can find nowadays in Hong Kong are uh, demonstration projects or small-scale projects which are not uh, having large impact to the societies. 
Yeah, and why do you think that's the case? I think it is because of the uh, various uh, limitations we have. Uh, for example, the space, the lands that uh, is required, and also the market also doesn't favor this type of uh, technology entering into the energy uh, uh, situations. So I mentioned that uh, China was planning to, um, or is already, uh, um, beating out many other countries, including Germany, in terms of uh, expense on renewables generally. Um, is it um, a lot more favorable when you have um, homes instead of apartments and and land in which to um, you know to to pursue this? Mm. Uh, for the mainland China, I think because it is a very large country with uh, different areas, different type of developments, progress. So I think there is a need actually in mainland China to uh, explore more renewable energy, including solar or wind or other form of renewables. Which in municipalities North- in China do you think are making the most progress? Uh, I think one of the major reasons is the government support in the mainland China that make the progress. Yeah, uh, I mean, which cities or provinces or areas uh, are, you know, getting an advantage? In terms of solar energy technologies, I think the, those uh, near the coastal line in the east or southeast of the mainland China is uh, growing very fast at this moment. So, Tyler, you mentioned yeah. that solar panel installation, uh, you know, um, proved to be um, uh, difficult. Um, what have you pivoted, pivoted to? Well, we noted that um, the problem wasn't with sustainable technologies or um, you know the, the market's desire to save, uh, conserve energy, uh, both for saving money and saving carbon purposes. Um, and so we just realized that the most cost-effective way to do that was to sort of pick the low-hanging fruit. At this point in time, solar isn't really low-hanging fruit uh, in the sustainable uh, economy. And so we focused on energy monitoring, um, which doesn't in itself do anything to uh, you know reduce energy but it allows the um, a building owner um, you know the principal of a school the students within a school the uh, employees within a company to see exactly where and when uh, their building is using energy um, that allows them to sort of identify a potential wastage um, sort of get everybody on the same page when it comes to conserving energy within a building and then you see uh, savings of you know 10 to 15 to 20 percent um, just based on behavioral responses to this new knowledge so that's already a very big and clear payback uh, that solar can't currently provide uh, and so we've seen a lot more demand for those services uh, and, and systems as opposed to solar uh, Professor, uh, it would seem uh, that down the road you could envision a, a situation where um, there would be um, solar panels um, bringing in lots of energy, batteries that would able, be able to store it. Uh, and even if there was excess to the consumer's use, that it could be fed back into a grid. Um, is this something that is pie in the sky thinking? Is it five years away, 10 years away or more? Uh, I think when we look at the solar energy, we should also uh, understand that there are two major types of solar uh, energy. One is the solar photovoltaics, which is a use of electricity generated from the solar panels. But there is also another more popular or more mature technology, which is the solar thermal. Usually we make use of it for producing solar hot water. So I think in the climate in Hong Kong, I think we should try to promote more uh, solar hot water systems instead of uh, photovoltaic at this moment because uh, solar hot water have been widely used in the southern part of mainland China or many other countries uh, which have been uh, very cost-effective and successful. Is there any particular reason why we're not actually seeing that in Hong Kong? 
I think one of the is reasons, it education or is it help yes. from help from the government or is it the power companies themselves? Uh, I think one of the reason maybe people are not very familiar with uh, the solar uh, hot water systems at this moment, and also this type of system also require careful planning. Uh, for example, on the rooftop, in order to put all these uh, solar collectors and all the uh, water tanks, uh, storage tanks for the hot waters uh, into the building, which is uh, not a culture in Hong Kong at this moment. What about biomass and wind and other um, forms of renewables? I think at this moment we are also facing another major uh, environmental concern or problem, which is the waste. Actually, waste uh, from our society is one of the biomass that we can use. There are some uh, technology that try to convert waste into energies uh, for producing electricity directly. Uh, we can find a lot of examples in other countries or even in Macau. They have a very uh, successful waste-to-energy generation plan. I think we should try to consider this not only for the energy reason, but also for managing our waste. And Tyler, with the new push that you've made, uh, are you finding a degree of success or is it also kind of uh, difficult uh, going? Uh, we, we found huge success uh, in this area in terms of um, customers, whether it's companies or, or other organizations, um, really wanting to focus on saving energy. Um, to them, that just makes logical sense as the first step, uh, is making sure that you've got your operations and, and your behavior within an organization to the point where you're conserving resources. Um, and then you can sort of move on to the next steps of potentially producing electricity that is renewable to begin with, that is carbon-free to begin with. Um, so we, we've seen a very positive reaction uh, in Hong Kong as, as well as in other places where we work, such as Singapore. And do you see many... Um viable options for wind in the future? Um, we've only dealt with, uh, for instance, smaller scale wind, uh, which is a, sort of a fundamentally different thing from these big offshore projects or things you might see out in, in Tibet or the fields of Kansas. Um, but in one problem we've seen a lot in Hong Kong is the issue of turbulence. Uh, in an urban environment, uh, there's quite a bit of turbulence, which keeps the, the wind from having a sort of single straight uh, direction, which makes the output pretty minimal in comparison to uh, other places where you might have a, a steady unidirectional wind. Um, so that's something that has had a, a few problems. So just finally, uh, do both of you see much momentum out there that we could say maybe over the next five years that um, we would be, um, you know, dramatically better off in terms of a switch from, uh, from you know, using fossil fuels to using renewables? I think uh, <laughs> almost silence there for a, a full second. Go ahead. Uh, I Professor. think the government at this moment is trying to discuss about uh, the uh, policy and the strategy for promoting renewable energy in Hong Kong. Uh, we are still waiting uh, for the target they are going to aim at and also uh, the type of uh, maybe incentive measures they're trying to put forward in our society. And Tyler, you see sticking with your business for at least five years? Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, you can see the direction that the, the Hong Kong government is taking is um, if the main goal is to reduce carbon emissions uh, and to reduce dependency on, for instance, foreign countries and, and supplies, for instance, a lot of our coal comes from Indonesia. Um, if those are the goals, then there are a lot of different ways to achieve that. Okay. Uh, increased energy efficiency is one way to do that, uh, as well as the, the switch that they're trying to push, which is to more natural gas, which would come through China as opposed to um, uh, seaborne imports. Yeah. 
unfortunately still very expensive. But uh, anyway, okay, we're out of time. It's 8.30. The news coming up shortly. But thanks very much to Sam Hoy from the University of Hong Kong and Tyler Holland from NTRAC. Well, briefly in the weather today, expecting um, more of the same, some showers and thunderstorms. Very hot sunshine as well. Maximum temperature of 33. The news is coming up next. The news with Samantha Butler. The Chief Secretary, Carrie Lam, will brief lawmakers this afternoon on the results of a government public consultation on the 2017 Chief Executive and 2016 Legislative Council polls. Otis Wong reports. The report by a three-member task force on constitutional development will list out ideas collected during the consultation, including civil and party nomination, but it will not pass judgment on them. The chief executive, C. Y. Leung, will also submit his report to the National People's Congress Standing Committee later today. The government received 130,000 submissions over a five-month public consultation. Pro-democracy forces want a mechanism for nominating chief executive hopefuls that involves no pre-screening of candidates. But Beijing has made it clear that public nomination would breach the basic law. There's been further fighting between rival militia groups battling over the international airport near the Libyan capital Tripoli. It's not clear which militia group is attacking the airport, which has been closed since Sunday because of the fighting. Earlier, the United Nations said the situation in Libya was so unstable that it was withdrawing its staff. The BBC's Rana Jouad reports from Tripoli. A barrage of rockets struck Tripoli's international airport and its parameters. A security source at the scene tells the BBC the air traffic control tower was hit. A dozen grounded Libyan planes have been partly damaged, according to the same source. The extent of damage to the control tower was not immediately clear. The latest attack is part of a continuing power struggle between rival armed groups in the city. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning. It's 8.33. Welcome to Money for Nothing, the second half hour of the program. Back chat, if you're normally used to listening to it here, is taking a summer break and we'll be back in the beginning of September. We continue with our news coverage now here on the program. 23 pan-Democrat legislators have issued a joint letter to the chief secretary urging her to attend alleged co-constitutional affairs panel next Monday. They want more time to question her about the report on the public consultation on political Political reform. Mrs. Lamb will deliver the report this afternoon during a two-hour House committee meeting at, at the Legislative Council. But the pan-Democrats say that that will leave insufficient time for lawmakers to ask questions and to express their views. Charles Mock, the IT sector representative, is one of the signatories of the letter. The Constitutional Affairs uh, Panel is actually a perfect and a better uh, occasion and, and, and a forum to discuss it. And at least uh, we organize a special meeting for it. Usually it will be another two hours. Uh, I think that will get a lot of questions answered. So what expectations do you have for the report? 
Well, I don't, I don't know uh, at the moment from the report uh, that we have been getting. Uh, I don't think we can have a lot of very high hopes for it. Uh, apparently, it might be just a compilation of all the uh, uh, views that are being collected. Uh, of course, we, would, we will be expecting to get a glimpse at the chief executive's uh, recommendation or report to the uh, uh, central government as well. Uh, that I think we also have to uh, see whether or not it has uh, adequately reflected the views of uh, a lot of uh, the Hong Kong public, which has expressed, uh, you know, that uh, they do not want any screening for a chief executive election in 2017, uh, and uh, many of us also expressed that they want a system that will include civic nomination. Now, do you think a two-hour House committee meeting was the right platform for this, or do you think Carrie Lam is looking to rush it through? Well, I, I, I guess uh, uh, I don't know. I mean, uh, we, I, I would hope that at least uh, if she comes here, uh, actually, I would actually think that even Wednesday after our, chief, uh, our main council meeting is completed, uh, that would be even better because that, that way uh, she wouldn't be coming over and then taking a, a, away from us at least four hours of our meeting time on the, on the, on the council meeting. Uh, but uh, uh, she coming over and taking up four hours of our meeting time in the council meeting uh, is actually uh, not a very good arrangement, first of all. And second, uh, she, and that's still not enough time to uh, to actually really answer our questions. So uh, I, I think, uh, you know, I, I, I have no idea why they would want to make an arrangement like this and rush it and not even one day or two later, uh, which actually, in my mind, would be, would be a little bit more uh, uh, comfortable for our schedule. Legislator Charles Mark speaking with RTHK's Anna-Marie Evans. Lawmakers are expected to formally endorse a bill to double stamp duty on property transactions later today. The financial secretary, John Jung, announced the measure last year in a bid to tame soaring prices. He says the measure has been effective in cooling the market. Mike Weeks asked the chairman of professional property services, Nicholas Brook, if he agreed. I think it definitely has um, uh, helped calm the market, if you like. Um, The problem supply hasn't gone away, and perhaps we can talk about that a bit in a minute. But uh, I think there's a gradual realization, if you like, that government is serious uh, in in this particular initiative. And uh, um, uh, it's largely, I think, been factored into pricing and decision-making. And this is why we've seen the uh, what I describe as the calming of the market and uh, um, uh, some order, if you like, brought to the situation. The government, though, did announce uh, concessions in May, which has seen the sort of second-hand property market rebound quite strongly, hasn't it? Well, to some degree, yes. Um, but where we're really seeing the activity, of course, is in the primary market, where the, the supply that the chief executive has been trying to um, uh, put onto the market is now actually be, we're now beginning to see it uh, have effect, if you like, have impact. And uh, um, we're seeing, obviously, a much greater volume in sales, particularly in the primary sector. You're saying, I mean, obviously, primary sector, we're then down to housing supply. You said that's a, a problem we could get onto shortly. The government's trying to do something about that. Do you see that as being the biggest factor in helping to drive down prices? Yes, it is. And clearly, it's, it's uh, the chief executive, main, it's the main item on the chief executive's agenda. Um, but, again, there's no, you know, no quick fix. Um, yes, we're looking at numbers up this year, probably thirteen to 15,000 new units. Um, uh, uh, being uh, released for sale during the year. Um, but still, you 
you know, that's way short of his 20,000 target. And uh, um, as a result, prices have stayed um, fairly strong, as you know. And indeed, we're beginning to see prices begin to move up, move up the ladder again. We had uh, the, the head of the monetary authority, Norman Chan, saying, uh, you know, the existing property tightening measures could be relaxed once the housing market bubble is lanced. From what you're saying, we're nowhere near that point. No, I mean, I think we have to see the, the supply initiatives really bite before um, there's going to be any discussion around um, um, a phase relaxation, if you like, of these stamp duty initiatives. We have seen commercial property transactions falling by a significant amount, haven't we, this year. Uh, do, do, do you think that, uh, in essence, the government should relax some of the measures in that sector? Uh, I, I don't think there is really a, a case. I, I think that, you know, they can justifiably argue that the car, they've achieved the calming. Um, the market has factored in now stamp duty, I believe, uh, these new measures that, uh, in, into virtually all the transactions and uh, into the decision-making process. So, um, I don't think there is any real pressure to, uh, to relax, if you like, not at this stage. As the chairman of Professional Property Services, Nicholas Brook, speaking earlier this morning on Hong Kong Today. Some stories still ahead. Could the week-long conflict between Israel and Hamas be halted in the next few hours? And Britain's Foreign Secretary, William Haig, has stood down in a significant ministerial reshuffle of Prime Minister David Cameron's cabinet. Those stories a little bit later in this half hour. We'll give you a market update now. The Nikkei is up about 50 points in uh, early trading in Tokyo. Uh, trading now at 15,346. The Australian market is higher. Also in Seoul, the Kospi is up about half of 1%. Pretty good day on Wall Street where the Dow was up 111 points. And in London, the FTSE gained 55 points to 67.46. Apple stock ended up 1.3% at 96.45. A couple of major investment banks distributed bullish notes on Apple shares. But there was a warning from Taiwan research outfit KGI Security Securities. Analyst Guo Mingqi released a report cited by the websites Apple Insider and Mac Rumors that Apple may have to delay, delay the launch of a larger 5.5-inch iPhone 6. Crawford Del Pret of IDC Research says it's not easy to separate fact from rumor. There's going to be a lot of stuff coming out. I think what's interesting about the report is that there's a lot of discussion around um, some of the advanced screen technology and making sure that you have you know consistent uh, rendering of colors. And then also something that I think the world needs to get used to. Look, this is going to be, whether it comes out in, 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 in Q1 of 15 or whether it comes out in the fourth quarter, a really a hot product, one of the biggest products we've seen in a long time. The drop testing issue, which came out in, in that report, and questions around dropping a five and a half inch phone and whether the screen shatters and to what degree you can. I think that's an education. That was the, one of the most important things that I read. Well, the time is now about 18 minutes before nine o'clock and you're listening to Money for Nothing here on Radio 3. Hong Kong company ANX is leading the charge in Bitcoin innovation, launching the world's first ever Bitcoin debit card. We're joined now on the line by David Chapman, the chief operating officer of ANX. Mr. Chapman, good morning. Hey, good morning. It's great to be here. What are the main functions of, of, a, of a debit card like this uh, of Bitcoin? Uh, the same functionality as the bank cards that people hold in their wallets and purses today. 
Um, but the big difference is is that uh, it allows our customers to fund their balance in bitcoins. Um, you know, even though Bitcoin is gaining adoption uh, by more and more merchants every day, uh, we acknowledge that it's still a little too tough to spend Bitcoins. Uh, so what we're trying to do is bring down that barrier and uh, pair this new technology that is Bitcoin uh, with a technology um, that people have been comfortable with for the last 20 years, and that's their typical bank card. So presumably people have to have an account with you. Correct. They need to have an account with us, and they also need to be verified. So verified is uh, in, com in compliance with our Know Your Customer policy. Uh, so similar to opening a bank account, where you would need to prove uh, proof of ID and uh, proof of, uh, of address, uh, we do the same sort of uh, checks at ANX. Um, and once verified, uh, you're welcome to use a typical fee of funds, and we can issue you with an ANX Bitcoin debit card. And just like with a bank account, whatever you do with your, with your account, it automatically uh, is available through use by the debit card? That's correct. Um, you can fund your account in any of the 11 major currencies we support, uh, so typical uh, traditional government-issued currencies, and you can also load your card uh, with Bitcoins, which is converted to, uh, to a USD amount. Did you get any uh, regulatory help, or was that um, difficult to actually clear those hurdles to get going? Uh, so it's one thing that we take a lot of pride in, is uh, we, also, we always remain regulatory compliant and remain in constant discussions with uh, the regulators. Um, we do have a uh, money service that's operated license issued to ourselves, and we remain in uh, constant correspondence with our legal counsel with respect to all uh, regulatory and legal obligations. What would some of the limitations be for people? Uh, so the Bitcoin debit card, it allows, it does have a, a daily maximum spend, and it does have a maximum recharge amount. So it's probably a little bit less than what people are typically used to within their, uh, within their, their standard-issued bank cards, but um, this is the first step. So we're taking it slowly, and uh, we'll see how we go. And how many retailers are out there taking uh, Bitcoin as a, a currency? Uh, taking Bitcoin directly as a currency, it's probably a little bit slower in Hong Kong than, uh, than some other jurisdictions and regions, um, but we are seeing um, merchants you know, get on board um, with Bitcoin uh, day by day. It's probably more widely uh, adopted or accepted online. Um, you know, just the other week, we saw um, the travel giant Expedia.com uh, is now taking Bitcoin. So you know, every day we're seeing new retailers come on, and uh, as technology improves and as it becomes easier for people to spend Bitcoins, I'm very confident that we'll see your traditional bricks-and-mortar outlets also accept Bitcoin as well. What do you think is most appealing about Bitcoin as, uh, as the institution that it is? I mean, is it more a transactional um, measure or is it um, something else, um, you know, storing value? What, what, do, you, um, what do you see Bitcoin, uh, uh, you know, as, as the most beneficial aspect? You know, you've got payment freedom. You've got very low fees or no fees. You know, you have security and control. And, and uh, at the same time, it's completely transparent and neutral. Um, you know, all the information concerning the Bitcoin money supply itself is readily available for anyone to verify and use in real time. And I guess, you know, one of the things that, that scares a little bit, that scares some people, is that no individual organization can actually control or manipulate the Bitcoin protocol uh, because it's cryptographically secure. Um, so this allows the core of Bitcoin to be trusted for being completely neutral, transparent, and predictable. Is it a bit of a stretch to say that it may transform um, international payment transactions in the same way that the Internet has transformed uh, information flow? It's definitely not a stretch to say that at all. You know, if 
we the, the uncanny resemblance between the internet and Bitcoin is amazing. You know, they're, they're very much aligned. If we compare the internet in, uh, you know, it, it's, it's mid-90s, everyone uh, thought it was a, a nerd technology and no one would uh, could comprehend where we would be with it today, or without it, rather. Um, so I think, you know, you've, we've, with the internet, we had, or prior to the internet, we had closed network systems, um, such as the teletext service on people's TVs, um, you know, fax systems, whatever else be the case. And with the internet, what we saw is, you know, information networks became open, um, it became free, and anyone could publish what they want. And uh, that's similar to where we're going with, with Bitcoin. You know, if we, if we compare Bitcoin to the traditional payment network today, um, you know, we use bank flyers via the SWIFT uh, payment network, and that's been an antidated technology since it's been with us since, since the, you know, the mid-70s. Um, and I think what you'll find is that with Bitcoin, it's it's you know it is going to become it is going to be revolutionary. It is revolutionary already. Yeah, but is um, the typical uh, is the typical Bitcoin user a member of the one percent, the top one percent only? Uh, you know, it depends. Uh, I don't think a typical Bitcoin user is is part of that top one percent. Um, I think we're, we're in fact we're, he might we're be a skeptic. I suppose uh, he may be a bit skeptical of people who um, reside in that one percent. I guess uh, should people be rewarded for taking a risk on a new technology? You know, this is probably one of the largest uh, experiments in the world, and it looks like it's starting to pay off. How uh, much of a people... setback, though? How much of a setback something like what happened with Mount Gox? Yeah, you know, Mount Gox was, uh, you know, it, it was, uh, it was damaging to Bitcoin and, and damaging to the Bitcoin community, and damaging to the to the Bitcoin community who who lost their money as well. Um, you know, I think, you know, they were an organization that, uh, you know, it was a, a, a gross. Uh, negligence of, of management. Um, it was bad technology. Um, but at the same time, you know, this isn't the only financial exchange or financial institution that has failed. You know, if we look at, you know, the financial collapse from, you know, 2000, 2000, from 2008 to now, there's been many more financial institutions that have failed for a lot, lot losing a lot more money. And in, not, in all those cases, were, were those losses insured either? Okay, so final question. You mentioned that the typical Bitcoin user uh, perhaps doesn't reside uh, only in the in the top one percent. Uh, um, define for me the typical Bitcoin user. What is the what is his what is his uh, approach and his ethos about using Bitcoin? Well, to start with, it, it, I think it's wrong to say it's a, it's a he. Um, you know, we have uh, many female customers and. Uh, I'd say there isn't a, a general profile of a Bitcoin user um, or a Bitcoin you know, believer or a Bitcoin customer. Um, you know, Bitcoin has numerous advantages um, depending on who you are and, and what you intend to use it for. Um, you know, in terms of we look at, um, you know, we look at countries where people have a lack of, of confidence in a government currency, such as Argentina, Mexico, Africa, um, and Cyprus. You know, Bitcoin is a, is a technology that allows people to store their funds store the funds themselves, store them securely, and also be able to, to make a payment to anyone in the world um, without, you know, without government manipulation or, what, or concerning themselves that the, that the government is going to print more money and devalue the, the savings that they do have. Okay, David, uh, thanks very much for joining us here on the program. Always interesting. Best of luck with that debit card. David Chapman, the Chief Operating Officer of ANX. The time is now 10 minutes before 9 o'clock, and this is Money for Nothing.
Thanks for joining us here on the program. We'll just give you a brief uh, heads up on the weather today. Uh, there is a typhoon, uh, Ramasun, that is centered about 600 kilometers east-southeast of Manila. It's forecast to be moving west at about 22 kilometers per hour towards the Philippines. We'll keep an eye on that storm for you. Showers today and isolated thunderstorms here, 33 as the maximum. Back to the news now. Could the week-long conflict between Israel and Hamas be halted in the next few hours? A proposal has been put forward by the Arab League for a ceasefire over Gaza. The Arab League's foreign ministers have been meeting in the Egyptian capital, Cairo. The BBC's Orla Guerin has details on the proposal. What we have now from the Egyptian side is a blueprint. It calls on both Israel and the Palestinians to begin to cease hostilities from 6 a.m. Tuesday morning local time. Uh, If they agree to that and if a truce actually takes hold, uh, that stage is to be followed by negotiations uh, here in Cairo within 48 hours. Now, those negotiations would be a separate sit-down with a high-level delegation from each side. Uh, They would discuss some of the long-term, very contentious issues that deeply divide them, uh, like, for example, the Palestinian demand for Israel's blockade of Gaza to be lifted, and like Israel's demand for quiet uh, from Gaza for no more rockets to be fired. So this is really just the beginning of a process. Neither side has formally accepted it yet, but both have said they will consider it, and there are some quite positive indications uh, from both sides. An Israeli official has said the Security Cabinet will meet on Tuesday morning to study the proposal seriously. Uh, Officials there are also saying they believe Hamas is seriously weakened, that its rockets and its its production facilities have now been destroyed. That would suggest uh, that the the Israeli government rather may feel that its operation in Gaza has been a success and that it may now be willing to come to the negotiating table. Hamas, for its part, has said there's no deal yet, but there is a diplomatic movement and that it's open uh, to the Egyptian blueprint. BBC's Orla Guerin reporting. More than three years after the conflict in Syria began, the war between President Assad and his opponents grinds on. It's affecting millions of people in the country. Now the UN Security Council has offered some sucker in the shape of a resolution that would authorize humanitarian convoys into Syria. Details now from Nick Bryant. Up until now, almost 90% of the humanitarian aid that's been distributed by the United Nations in Syria has gone to people in government-controlled areas. And what the point, the chief aim of this resolution is, is to rectify that and to make sure that life-saving aid goes to opposition-held areas as well. One of the problems has been getting what's called cross-border access, convoys rumbling over the Syrian border to reach those hard-to-reach areas, as they're called, at the UN. And that's specifically what this resolution addresses. It identifies four border crossing points and it says very specifically that UN convoys will be able to cross those borders with medical and food supplies without the permission of the Assad regime. And it's the first time a UN resolution has stated that so clearly. BBC's Nick Bryant reporting. Seven minutes now before nine o'clock. Well, back here at home, the logistics industry is urging the government to provide about 70 hectares of land for its use over the long term. It made the call after a survey it commissioned revealed that those working in logistics believe that the development of the industry could be hampered by insufficient land supply. Frankie Yick represents the transport industry in Legco and joins us now on the line. Mr. Yick, good morning. Uh, Good morning. Why exactly are you asking for more land? 
Well, I think uh, this is not the problem of today. And uh, go, let's go back. Uh, if you uh, check, uh, look back at the uh, 209 in the policy addressed by the government at that time. At that time, they already promised the industry to provide at least 29 hectares of land. And uh, hopefully they will be able to build a cluster of uh, logistics industries over there. But unfortunately, seven years down the road, uh, no, now five years down the road, up till now, only, they have only released about seven hectares of land. And uh, there was another survey being done before, but they are not talking about the site area, but talking about the fall area. And at the right, at this point in time, at least there are shortage of five million square feet of warehouse facilities here in Hong Kong. Now, this latest study by the uh, Hong Kong University, as well as our industry people that play over there, they said that according to the industry, we are, we are looking for 70 hectares of land. And in order to accommodate all kinds of the uh, logistics uh, activities. And in what areas are you asking for this land? Now, uh, please, uh, now the re- one of the reasons why they are they are doing this survey by themselves instead of uh, allowing our government to tell you where to go, and they they are looking at the uh, strategic locations in Hong Kong where uh, it would be more uh, suitable for the industry to uh, to build their facilities over there. And they have identified basically three areas. One is in the uh, I think uh, uh, several areas in the short term, definitely is the Chengyi area and also the Twin Moon area, Lock uh, 38 and 49. In the medium term, it's also in the Twin Moon West. But in the longer term, they are talking about Lantau and uh, also the Lock Eastern New Territories and also the uh, Lock Western. Uh, that, uh, we are talking about the uh, Hong Sui Kiao area. Are you mostly asking for areas that are not inhabited by many people or indeed are some of these areas pretty well inhabited? Well, uh, quite a lot of areas uh, there are uh, at the moment, like the Chengyi, basically is for the uh, the uh, port backup area. So uh, what the government needs to do is to reshuffle a bit instead of asking people to leave the place. And Trimun, they are also uh, they are these are all virgin lands. There are no people are living there right now. And Lantau, Xiuho one, definitely we are talking about uh, reclamation in the future. And uh, if you're talking about the northeastern and northwestern, yeah, there are some people living there, but this is a part of the long-term development of the new town by the government. Because you even see the difficulties that the government is facing in the new territories uh, northeast, uh, where there are not so many people in the area affected and still quite dramatic protests. Are, are you ready to face these protests? Well, I think uh, the government needs to sit down to talk to those uh, stakeholders on how to resolve the problem. But I think one thing very important that uh, Hong Kong is in shortage of land, no matter what sort of business you're talking about. And uh, we need to do some development. And uh, let's try to find a solution way, uh, solution out, you know. Sure. Do you think this is really, in a sense, hurting Hong Kong's competitiveness? And if so, in what way? Well, if we are not going to have uh, enough land for the industry to develop, definitely is what, what would happen is uh, the rent will shut up. So if the rent shut up, and on the other hand, we're also having the labor shortage issue right now here in Hong Kong. So if both the labor costs as well as the land continue to move up, I'm sure it will hurt our competitiveness in the, in the region. So it affects the long-term development of the industry. And don't forget, in the budget speech this year by uh, John Jiang, the first section he talks about is the trading and logistics industry and how important it is. He's talking about these two together, talking about 25% of contribution in the GDP in Hong Kong and employs 770,000 people. Yeah, just briefly, you know, since we don't make many products here, is that really the case that over the long term, logistics is going to be that important? Well, absolutely. 
as far as we have a border here. Now, you know Hong Kong is a free port, okay? And uh, if you look at the 12 five-year plan by the central uh, government, they said they will encourage Hong Kong to develop into the uh, one of maritime center in the region and also support Hong Kong to develop as the high-value goods inventory and uh, distribution center in the Asia, in Asia. Now, the reason why Hong Kong is good because it's a free port. Okay. okay? Uh, we are in the middle of Asia. Within five hours' flight, we can reach half of the population in the world. So it, strategically, it's in the right place. And uh, everything, uh, well, most of the people, they like to, to put the, uh, the, the products here in Hong Kong because it's tax-free, uh, no import duty. And then when I uh, like the, uh, the luxury goods, they can pick up five handbags to Shanghai, uh, six pairs of shoes to Beijing, and five shirts to uh, Singapore. It's, uh, because of the hub, uh, we already have the hub here. All right. Well, it's an interesting story. Thanks very much, um, Mr. Yick, for joining us here on the program. Frankie Yick, who is uh, the lawmaker representing the transport industry in the Legislative Council. Well, that's uh, bringing us to the end of the program. We'll leave you with the bullish state of affairs in equity markets in Asia this morning. The Nikkei up 136 points. That's a gain of almost 1% at 15,433. I didn't mention that gold had a pretty sizable drop overnight, losing about $30 an ounce. Gold down to $1,308.80. And oil prices continue to tick lower. Brent crude down 18 cents at $106.80. And just back to the equity markets in Asia mentioned that the Nikkei was higher. Australia up 11 points and the Kospi in Seoul up 15 points. We'll leave you with the weather here on the program. Um, Some showers expected, as you mentioned earlier. Very hot conditions, sunny periods today, maximum temperature about 33. Yeah, look for the next few days. Very hot tomorrow. The winds will begin to strengthen. Yes, those winds will strengthen on Thursday. Coming up next, the news, and after that, Morning Brew with Phil Whelan.